1: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan.
2: And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson, and Kevin, I hope you're spoiling and ready for a fight.
1: I mean, it is the war episode, but I think taking a page out of Dr. Strangelove's textbook, I don't know if I'm really ready for there to be fighting in the war room.
2: At least definitely not in the recording studio, but there will be fighting on screen. Listeners, we are going to be discussing Catherine Bigelow's 2012 movie Zero Dark Thirty for our watch list segment.
1: We're also going to be talking about the slightly more crowd-pleasing The Woman King, Gina Prince-Bythewood's historical epic about West African nations fighting in the early 1800s.
2: And maybe, if we're lucky, there might be a little bit of verbal fisticuffs happening here on episode 351 of Seeing and Believing.
3: An evil is coming, that threatens our kingdom, our freedom, but we have a weapon, they are not prepared for. My king, the Europeans wish to conquer us. They will not stop until the whole of Africa is theirs. We must fight back
0: for our people. Paneska, you are asking me to take them to war. war. Some
3: things are worth fighting for.
1: We're here on episode 351 of Seeing and Believing. This is, uh, I think, the first episode where we've had uh, both movies be war movies of of one variety or Mm -hmm. another, which I know uh, you're you're not the biggest fan of war movies. Are you going to be okay in this? Is there going (laughs) to be some large-scale conflict happening here in the recording studio?
2: Hopefully not in the recording studio. Definitely on the screen, but we'll see how that pans out.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, we'll we'll try to keep things uh, relatively pacifistic uh, for this week's episode. We are going to be talking about Zero Dark Thirty, uh, the controversial 2012 film about the hunting of Osama bin Laden in the Watchlist segment. But for now, we're going to turn our attention to our review of the new release for this week, Gina Prince-Bythewood's... The woman king. This is set in West Africa in the early 1800s. It's adapting the historical events surrounding the conflict between the kingdom of Dahomey and the Oyo Empire. The Oyo Empire obtains its vast resources by capturing the people of the smaller kingdoms under its thumb and selling them into the Atlantic slave trade, while Dahomey is forced to pay tribute every year in order to stave off a war. However, Dahomey has a secret weapon, the Agojie, a fierce unit of warriors who are entirely female and are led by the grim Naniska, played by the great Viola Davis. The film follows a younger recruit as she joins the Agojie and takes part in the long odd struggle to overthrow the Oyo and halt the cycle in which warring factions of Africans help interlopers from Europe and the Americas enslave Africans. So... There's a lot going on in this in this film, mm-hmm. uh, but at its heart, it's a relatively straightforward, full-throated, full-blooded Hollywood war history picture. So maybe that's a good place for us to start as we get into our conversation here, Sarah. Uh, how did this film work for you as one in a long tradition of th- historically-based films that center on uh, warfare and, and conflict?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean... It feels like a Hollywood war movie, emphasis on the Hollywood side of things, like very crowd-pleasing. The tension and the conflict have kind of been boiled down essentially to a basic conflict between two kingdoms, mostly for simplicity's sake. And I think we can get into the historicality of the conflict, I think, later on in our discussion. But in terms of a movie about conflict, this actually really worked for me in a way that I wasn't really expecting. Like I I genuinely enjoyed sitting down and watching the lives of these characters as as they struggle for independence, for freedom from oppression, um, for trying to, I guess, understand themselves as a people who are independent from those who would enslave them and take advantage of them. So Winton feeling a little bit... um, Maybe the right word is apprehensive just because I am a little bit. Not anti war movies, but they're not my favorite genre. Um, But I was really taken in by this one. And I suspect a lot of it has to do with the movie's sense of place and sense of character, and especially very good choreography, both in terms of fighting and dancing. So um, I'm curious to know, Kevin, did this movie work for you as well as it worked for me?
1: So I feel about this film a little bit in the same way that I felt about Prince Bythewood's uh, previous film, The Old Guard, in Mm -hmm. that it's never better when. she's just staging these bone-crunching action sequences Mm -hmm. or uh, just elaborate choreography. I think uh, she really excels with those sequences. Um, And I think it's also interesting that this film, you know, it does present a very digestible form of the history here. But having said that, it does really... Try to go deep on a lot of subjects. So, of course, there's there's the obvious uh, subject of of gender roles in you know 1800s West Africa. Mm-hmm. There's the the question of of slave trading and the dynamics that were apparent in that whole situation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an interesting uh, subplot involving the the king of Dahomey, mm-hmm. played by John Boyega here, and just the different pressures that are on him, kind of the ways that strength or weakness can be projected in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's a lot of really interesting things going on in the picture. I I think in the end, I'm a little bit cooler on it than you, you are, mostly because I think it, it – eventually bites off a little bit more than it can chew. It's got a lot going on in the movie, mm-hmm. but I don't think that it really enables itself to treat any of those mini subjects with the kind of depth that I would find satisfying about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I So I appreciated the attempt, and it's very ambitious. And the I think the action sequences are maybe where it shines brightest – And my only complaint there is I don't really – there's not enough of them. (laughs) I think there's maybe three big action set pieces in the film, maybe four. Um, And for a film that really seems to be set on spending a lot of time with these women and really letting us kind of luxuriate in the sight of uh, an an all-woman warrior corps (laughs) doing their work – I, I would have liked to have seen more of that, um, or at least if it wasn't going to go in that direction to maybe spend a little bit more uh, thought and consideration on the on the non-action oriented elements of the film. And I just, the, it never really coheres, I guess, in the end for me. That's
2: funny because I think that it did cohere not just in the action sequences, but in the sequences that focus solely on the agogie. Um, it didn't work for me quite so well when the movie branches out and goes exploring in a little bit further territory. So I would have liked a little bit more of the palace intrigue that we get here because you do get some very surface level palace intrigue with the king's wives plotting against Nansika, the leader of the Agogia. And a lot of that was conveyed just with a couple of lines and somebody walking off in a huff down down a hallway somewhere um, where I would have appreciated a little bit more plotting and scheming and and palace intrigue but i think that the movie kind of counterbalances that by giving you a really good sense of who the agogia are and how they come to care about each other and how those bonds of camaraderie are formed and i think part of the reason why the action sequences worked so well for me was because i knew who all of these women were to begin with and i knew how they felt about each other as well um And that leads to some pretty interesting tensions in between different characters. So at one point, Nansika tells one of her soldiers, you need to go and save your own life. Like, if you stop, then you are dead and a dead soldier can't serve your kingdom. And... We understand why it would be a temptation to break that line and to go back and and to rescue a fallen comrade because these characters really do care so much about each other. And you actually get to feel the consequences of those decisions on the battlefield. They may be split second. They may be something that they try to train out of you so that you can be the most effective warrior that you can be. But in the end, if you have that strong relational bond with somebody else, you're going to go back for them. And I think the movie does a good job of sort of pressing on that relational um, tension and those bonds in between those characters. So I I mean,
1: I do think that the film does do a good job of prodding at a lot of the tensions inherent in... This situation. So, of course, there's, there's the tension inherent in Africans helping uh, Europeans and Americans uh, enslave Africans. Mm-hmm. There's the tension that you brought up about th- where the the Agogye are explicitly positioned as a sisterhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so the bond is very strong, and yet uh, Niniska uh, commands them in a very very pragmatic very grim sort of you take care of yourself mm-hmm. first like that's and it's the, the bonds of sisterhood as the way she puts it forward is more just it's it makes them a stronger fighting force not because there's any sort of sentimentality attached to it mm-hmm. um the the tension even in the in the film's title the Woman King where, they are engaged uh, primarily in combat against uh, all male fighting forces. and uh, the ways in which that engaging in in what is a conventionally masculine uh, pursuit, um, both dovetails with their femininity, and sometimes g- cuts against the grain of their femininity. And that's kind of an interesting tension that, again, I don't know that the film really explores that in a depth where I feel like I came away from this feeling fully engaged by it. But I really liked all of those elements kind of being held in tension through most of the picture. Mm-hmm. And I think the resolution that it arrives at, at, on, at first glance, I was wondering if it was a little bit simplistic. But the more I sat with that ending... Where Niniska uh, kind of is forced to reconcile certain elements of her own femininity mm-hmm. with her status as the leader of this elite fighting group. I, I, I thought that it reached kind of a, an interesting note of complexity that... I found compelling even if I didn't think it was wholly successful.
2: Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm actually kind of glad that the movie doesn't really comment on the femininity of these warriors any more than it needs to. Like you get a little bit in dialogue about how these are women who have pledged themselves. They're never going to have children. They're never going to marry. They're just going to fight. And their enemies look down on them because of that. And I think that it's explicitly stated that – the Oyo think that the Dahomey are weak because their women are the ones fighting their battles for them. But other than that, you don't really get very much about the gender, at least explicitly in in dialogue. It's just stated as a fact of life that the Agogier fight for the Dahomey. And... I kind of loved that, honestly, because it, it, it didn't feel like the typical Hollywood action. All of these are, you know, strong female characters who are just going to kick things and fight things. And, and they're not going to I mean, they can do everything that men can do backwards and in high heels. But like, that's their only character trait. I, f- I feel like this movie does a much better job of presenting women as a fighting force without explicitly commenting on it too much. And one of the other things that I really appreciated was that there's a lot of body diversity amongst all of these women as well. Like you can tell that these are all people from very different places and very different tribes, and there's no commentary on that at all. They're all just as capable of fighting regardless of their size or their height or anything else. Like they have all proven themselves to be the best. And so they don't need to prove that to the audience as well because they've already been able to do that, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. yeah it it's interesting and and compelling also that i mean like you said that this isn't the sort of movie that feels like it needs to constantly congratulate the audience on rooting for the women mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah. like it, it's not like oh these women are doing a you know doing the like you said kind of Doing everything the men are doing, but backwards and high heels, and isn't that great? And don't you feel great for rooting for them? Mm-hmm. It's very, um, like it's very matter of fact about it, and I I appreciated that. I do think that the I I'm curious to get your take on some of the subplots in the film, where to me I did, it did feel disappointingly conventional in some ways. the the way that Naniska is, um. Given a, a a backstory that involves uh, assault mm-hmm. and the ways that the conflict with the Oyo is made to dovetail with her own personal trauma, in ways I, I felt it felt. It, I guess this this is where the the Hollywoodization of the history maybe comes back to bite a little bit. Is it felt like in those moments it was disappointingly conventional where. So much of the other elements of the film were pretty fresh in that, though those parts felt a little bit like playing it safe, and also like the the film maybe was trying to have its cake and, and eat it too, where it was trying to tell on one hand a very, a very unique, and unconventional story, while also making sure that it checks the boxes of okay, there has to be a romance, mm-hmm. there has to be some sort of trauma, there has to be a a, a revenge, angle, and. Those, those were the moments, I guess, where the, the film kind of began to lose me as I felt like it was a little bit more paint-by-numbers than than I wanted it to be and also more paint-by-numbers than the film wanted to admit that it was.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I do appreciate how sensitively the movie handled those issues but at the same time, that's also where the movie lost me as well. And I'm thinking particularly about um, a familial relationship that gets revealed later on down the line in the movie. I won't say anything more about that because that probably constitutes um, plot spoilers or something. But the way that that plot twist, if it can even be called that, is handled didn't even really feel all that necessary to the stakes of the movie or or to the point of everything that's going on here it's just an additional wrinkle that felt more like a distraction on the battlefield than anything else the kind of thing that would make you trip over it rather than like enrich your understanding of who these characters are and why they're motivated to do what they do like you don't need that backstory in order to understand that these people are motivated to protect their own people you know like it just it just didn't it felt like unnecessary trim on a story that was otherwise like fairly straightforward. I mean, I'm, I'm of two minds about that, about that plot twist because I had an initial
1: reaction very similar to yours where it felt like it didn't add very much uh, other than kind of, uh, you know, d- giving sort of a, a personal stake in. In the conflict for a couple of the characters, but they're already heavily invested because they're fighting for their <laughs> nation's freedom. So yeah. it seems ancillary to me. That said, I I think this gets back a little bit to what I was talking about uh when I mentioned the the tension between uh Niniska engaging in a in a traditionally masculine arena mm-hmm. while also coming to terms with uh Uh, an experience that is is essentially feminine Mm. and the the plot twist where uh certain relationships are unveiled i can see an argument where uh that would be kind of explicating that a little bit like this is an example of the ways in which you know she's not just uh becoming Uh, a soldier she's still a woman Mm -hmm. and that and that entails certain uh experiences and and facts of life that can't simply be ignored i don't know if the film really does justice to that angle but i i i feel like the the late film plot twist kind of plays into that a little bit that I could see an argument that's not strictly just there to provide another little injection of stakes into the wartime conflict.
2: Yeah, it doesn't really work for me, Um, largely because I think that, yeah, I don't know. Like, I think I get where you're coming from. I also don't know that it's all that necessary to equate. Specific experiences with being the feminine experience because not every single woman is going to go through those experiences, you know Like it just it it feels like it's almost boiling her down to her gender where the movie otherwise refuses to say that she is just a woman the movie says this character is a woman and she is all of these other things and she can be all of those other things simultaneously does that does that make sense
1: it it makes sense i guess i'm i'm one one thing that i'm sorting through is in the film's final sequence viola davis is costumed very differently uh, from the way she is costumed throughout the rest of the picture, like for for most of the film, she's, you know, in very practical clothes, she's dressed as a general mm-hmm. um as as a woman of action, as as a fighting person. in the in the film's final sequence, she's wearing something much more, Traditionally feminine. It's it's a dress. Her hair is is not done up in the very practical combat-focused style. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like that was a very intentional choice on Prince Bythewood's part to say something about the growth that her character has made as a result of uh, certain revelations about uh, a relationship with another character.
2: Oh, I just read that as they're celebrating a victory. She doesn't have to be in the close of war anymore.
1: But there's other times where they where there is a victory where sh- that doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess it's it, it is celebratory nature and it's just sort of like it's the end of the movie, and so <laughs> yeah. we we do want to kind of end it on that kind of high note. But I, I was wondering if that costuming choice was meant to signify something more than just hooray we won and was maybe suggesting something about the character herself.
2: I think it's it's more of a, we won and the war is over as opposed to we won this battle and we've still got additional uh, additional battles to fight. Maybe it's more of she's at peace with herself, but I don't think that it means that she's necessarily like put away any part of herself like she's still a warrior she's still that person that she is it's just that she doesn't have a battle to fight the next day Hmm. um i do want to talk about the costuming though because i did think that it was it was very great um not just in terms of that one decision towards the very end but also just throughout the entire movie i think that there's a really good emphasis on color and on practicality um but the costuming is definitely gets to go into places that i wasn't fully expecting either um there's like i'd mentioned there are a couple of moments of, of court intrigue and i just wanted to call out that there's some really good dresses in this movie within the king's palace that i wasn't expecting to see and that i really could have just looked at for for much longer than the movie gave me opportunity to
1: you know it, it's it's maybe to my shame as a cinephile that when it comes to costuming i tend that that tends to be one of the things that i don't notice as quickly it's <laughs> just not something that i'm as tuned into mm. but here i think it's so lavish like i i immediately noticed those in those palace scenes as well like everybody looks great yes <laughs> and and i think that that combined with the the scenes where we see the Agotye, uh in, in a celebratory mood or during a, a ritualized uh, kind of a rite of passage for the new recruits, mm-hmm. uh, the way that music and movement and what they're wearing uh, play like is a big part of that. Mm-hmm. I found that to be I, I really dug those those moments of, of the film. I thought that the the filmmaking around those uh, sequences was was very. Uh, striking Mm -hmm. Uh, in addition to the the great costume design production design around all of that.
2: I think that speaks to um, how much you liked the battle sequences as well. So the choreography all around is very good. There are some very good dance sequences as well as good action sequences. Um, Janelle Stevens uh, choreographed this movie. She is also Viola Davis's stunt double. So she was intrinsically involved with quite a lot of the development of this film and I think that um, I don't know a ton about how these sequences were developed, but clearly she and Prince Blythewood are, are on the same page here. And they're very good at understanding like how the human body can move both in action and then also in joy. Like there's a lot of really good joyful dance sequences in here as well. Um, And the way that the body is framed doesn't feel objectifying in any way at all. And that's one of the things that I really, really loved about this being an action movie, specifically about women, is that's unfortunately still extremely rare. And it felt really good to be able to watch a movie that took its characters seriously, not just as, oh, here's a woman like congratulate us for including a woman in our action sequence but here's a movie that is populated by women and by women of color who are all good capable people first and you know like i just i thought that was so refreshing that i was willing to forgive the movie like it's it's handful of flaws i think with the script because it gets the action and it gets that physicality just so well
1: we we've talked a lot about Viola Davis, obviously, but I, I kind of want to uh, go move on to some of the other members of the cast. We've got some some really strong supporting performers, or at least I, I thought they were pretty strong. Thuzo Mbedu is uh, the the new recruit who who joins up, and she's kind of the 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 audience surrogate character as well. She she is new to this world, and so through her, the audience also learns about the Igogies customs, uh, the the different uh, dynamics that are played both interpersonal and political mm-hmm. um and i think that she does a, a strong job i haven't seen her kind of her breakout performance in the amazon series uh that's in an adaptation of the underground railroad mm. um but i was pretty impressed with her work here i also really liked uh lashana lynch as izogi mm-hmm. as kind of the the lieutenant and the 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 analog to a drill sergeant for <laughs> yes. the film the the person training i thought that um she also gave a performance that was also a nice change of pace from the the very kind of grim uh you know you must you must fight or you will die kind of attitude that that energy that viola davis brings to Naniska lashawn lynch plays zogi just uh, with this strain of humor Mm -hmm. that I thought was was very engaging and was, again, kind of a nice counterbalance to the much more serious-minded stuff going on elsewhere.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I was going to call her out as well. Um, A lot of, like... She says some pretty grim stuff, but with a smile on her face, which I appreciated. And then she also carries along a lot of that physicality as well, so much so that when her character has to fight with an injury, like you still believe that she's very much in pain and that she's able to hide that injury from the enemy soldiers that they're facing off against. Um, and she's able to do all of it without relinquishing that spark of, of joy and dignity that her character carries with her.
1: Yeah, I I agree with that as well so we we've not really talked that much about the the history angle of <laughs> of this film and so the transatlantic slave trade is obviously a really thorny topic and i'm really I, i'm curious to get your thoughts on how this film engaged with that history and the the specific ways in which that subject matter dovetailed with the the overall the overall thrust of, of the film itself this being a, a war picture it is primarily interested in the conflict between Dahomey and the oyo mm-hmm. um but there is a great deal of time also devoted to uh, a pair of brazilian slavers who who are engaged with the oyo in in Trafficking people, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on on that dimension of the film as well.
2: Yeah, and I think that the movie it's interesting because a lot of the conflict that's given in the film did not happen in real life, like in the same way necessarily. Like the Dahomey were also involved in the slave trade alongside the Oyo, um, and I do I don't know. Like I'm I'm sort of of two minds. I think that. This movie can be true without necessarily having had its central events actually having had happened, because I think that this movie is telling the truth about this was an awful trade and an awful practice and should never have been enacted on people. And I think that the movie does a good job of setting that just forward as this is something that we're all going to agree on. And now we're going to watch these characters kind of fight and struggle against that system of oppression. So I'm thinking specifically of um, the two Brazilian characters. One of them actually um, is not a slaver. um, And it's, it's said explicitly that his mother had been an enslaved woman in Brazil as well. And so when he returns to West Africa, it's it's his first time visiting, but also it's, it's kind of a homecoming for him in, in a way. And a, a form of, of self-discovery and understanding that there is something fundamental about him that was lost when his mother was removed from the continent. Um, I kind of wish that the movie had been willing to dig a little bit more deeper deeply into that central conflict because there's really not a ton of internal conflict with this character there's not too much conflict between him and his friend who is is definitely presented as this is a guy who is going to buy people and enslave them and and put them to to um terrible use and so like I don't I don't know I I feel like there's some interesting threads in this movie. And I think that the movie ultimately is very focused on on coming down on this is a bad practice and it should have been stopped. And so our, our heroes are going to be the people who are going to fight that practice. And I think... In and of itself, that kind of works for me as a form of truth telling, even though like the historicality of it is, is completely off the table. Um, but I'm curious to know what you think about that. I mean,
1: this this is kind of one of the places where I, I think that I, I go back to, to my initial criticism where it's compellingly sketched out. I don't think it's satisfyingly followed through on, hmm. um, and I think part of that is is just down to the way that the the slavers are used within the narrative. Mainly the the um, the biracial uh, member of the pair, the one who isn't a slaver, whose mother was originally uh, an enslaved person who was brought over to Brazil. He the way he's used within the narrative is mostly as Beefcake? <laughs> like, he's the love interest for uh, Thuso Mbedu's Naoi, uh, and he kind of gets some small moments where he he talks about kind of, you know, this is the place the the region from which his mother was taken. So in a way it's a homecoming for him. But it's primarily like the the plotline with the slavers I don't think is really explored in enough depth to really Make the audience feel the horror of of what is happening here. I mean, we, mm. we see, mm-hmm. of course, people who are who are caged up and imprisoned. We get some some shots of the uh, people who are uh, crewing the slave ships, kind of making merry in this port town and being disgusting. Mm-hmm. But there's they they're kind of just. It's almost these are almost blinking you'll miss it moments, and I think that I it was not really engaged with in a a fully satisfying way for me, and I I don't think that Prince Bythewood's decision to frame them mostly from the perspective of we we've got to give a a romantic angle for this character to pursue I think was. Just not really the right way to go for it.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't really – it felt like he was interested in her romantically, but it didn't really feel like she was – I. it felt like she was intrigued by him, but not really fully, like, seriously interested. And I think that that's totally fine. Um, it mostly felt as though he were a plot device to get these characters to where they needed to go within this conflict and honestly like i'm also okay with that he's he is a very thinly sketched character um and he really just serves as a way for the characters to know where they need to go in order to to complete their their quest for ending this practice i mean It's thin, but I don't think it needs to be sketched out. Like, I don't think we need to explore, like, or debate the merits and drawbacks of slavery because it's just bad, you know? Like, I think it's enough to know that it's bad and to know that there are people who are engaged with it and affected by it in different ways. And then to say, okay, cool, we're going to end this now. Like, we're not going to spend any additional time on the human misery part of it.
1: I I mean, I don't know that we necessarily need to, like, go into the... the horrific details mm-hmm. in in too much depth i think there needs to be some depth though and i don't think there was m- there wasn't enough of it i guess there's hmm. there's a conversation between john boyega's uh king and the uh, uh santo the uh the white uh s- slaver mm-hmm. uh where santo says you know if you don't engage in the slave trade with us then you won't be enriched. You will be weak among the rest of the nations that do do it. You'll be king of mud, mm-hmm. and that moment, of course, uh, Boyega's king reacts to with the with the kind of barely repressed anger and dignity that you would expect. Where he where he mentions, you know, you you say that now, but you forget that I am a king mm-hmm. and you are in my palace right now. So maybe you are the one who is without protection, and I. That was such a an interesting scene, but again, it was just it was a blink and you'll miss it moment, and I I just felt like I needed more of something like
2: that. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Well, listeners, uh, that is our review of The Woman King. It's been out for, for a little while. Uh, if you've had a chance to see this, you can let us know over Twitter, over Twitter at cbelievepod, or you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. We actually have already heard from a couple of you about the film, so we're going to be talking about that here in the conversation segment in a bit.
0: This episode is brought to you in part. By Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well known life events, but also ventures into behind the scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more.
1: Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there who are helping us keep the conversation about movies going. And as we just mentioned, we did pose a question on Twitter Uh, Since The Woman King, we're getting to it with our review a little bit after its initial release. So some of you have already had a chance to to catch it in theaters. And uh, we posed the question on Twitter about uh, those of you who had seen what you thought of it.
2: Yeah. And we heard back from Christy Olson, who said that um, she saw some really good performances with the standouts being Viola Davis and Thuzo Mberu. And she also especially enjoyed the scenes showing the singing, dancing, training, and overall camaraderie of the African women would have benefited from cutting the subplot with the European guys. We didn't need them. So, Christy, I think we're on the same wavelength here. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I feel I feel vindicated that Christy echoes uh, a lot of my uh, likes and dislikes about the, the film as well. So good job, Christy. I, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like I said, I... I the moments when uh, the feedback actually agrees with me, you know, I, I feel like it doesn't happen often enough, and when it does happen, I just have to hold those moments close and
2: <laughs> <Treasure> <laughs> revel them. in them
1: for, for a little bit. We also heard from Ron Sturry who did not actually see the film, um, and he, the reason he felt the need to write in those because it was related to the question that we touched on in our review mm-hmm. about the the historicity of of the film and the liberties it takes and whether that is a, a, a fatal flaw with the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, it was a, a problem for Ron to the point where he wasn't willing to see it. Uh, I mentioned that it kind of. It felt a little bit dissatisfying for me as well, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested to know uh, if if any other listeners felt that way about it as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'd be curious to know if you saw it and you felt as though that was a mark against the movie's favor as well. Um, and I would also be curious to know, like, if that didn't even matter, like, if that registered at all.
1: One of these is, one of these days, we're going to have to do a special. Uh, episode where we talk about biopics and movies based on history mm-hmm. and just how much uh, we are willing to tolerate in the terms of creative artistic liberties in those situations. Because I think that's a fascinating topic. And I'm not sure that I have a fully consistent view outlook on it yet. I know that I tolerate it at some points and I tolerate it at other points And that's something that I would really like to sort through on the air sometime.
2: I think we may be able to get a little bit of a chance at doing that in the second half of this episode as well, because we're going to be talking about another movie that is based ostensibly on on a lot of real-life events as well. So maybe we won't get into the full philosophical discussion about whether or not biopics need to be true down to the absolute minute of somebody's life, but I think we might get a little bit closer here.
1: Well, that's as good a segue as any. That's going to be coming up here in the next segment when we talk about the based on true story of Zero Dark Thirty.
2: So now we're going to go to the watch list, which, Kevin, as you know, is the segment where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. We watch it, we come back, and we discuss it. So this week, to pair with The Woman King, you picked Zero Dark Thirty, which is Catherine Bigelow's 2012 movie. Um, It is a dramatized version of firsthand accounts of actual events, as the movie says in the opening crawl. The film follows Maya Harris, who is a composite character and CIA analyst, played by Jessica Chastain, as she joins the hunt for Osama bin Laden in Pakistan shortly after 9-11. Her hunt burns through a decade, two presidential administrations with very different approaches to the war on terror, and countless lives and resources, until finally it culminates in a SEAL team raid on a compound in Abbottabad back pakistan so kevin this movie was really controversial on release it came out about a year after that seal team raid and it came out a little bit over 10 years after the events of 9-11 so um one of the reasons why i haven't seen it until now was because of that controversy back in 2012 and i'm curious to know 10 years on was that controversy earned
1: i i mean I don't know. I, the, the interesting thing about this film, and, and one of the reasons I picked it, is I feel like it's a little bit of a Rorschach test. Hmm. Because if you are inclined to be fully on board with the war on terror, uh, watching this movie will in, likely be a galvanizing experience. You're you're watching essentially um, some very bad people be hunted down in a... a in, a wholly justified operation hmm. and uh, the efforts of the people to aid that process are heroic. If you're less on board with the war on terror, then your feelings about watching that play out on screen, the matter of fact way that Bigelow frames it, hmm. is likely to be much, much more ambivalent. Um, and I think that was kind of played out with the the controversy back when this first came out where some people thought it was Uh, wholehearted endorsement of the tactics that the United States uh, employed to track down bin Laden, Mm -hmm. whereas other people uh, saw it as a more more conflicted take on those same events. And I don't know that there's really a definitive way to resolve that conflict because the – the matter of fact way that the matter of factness of the film is intrinsic to why I think it works, mm. um, and it's also potentially a liability because uh, you can't really when you when you present things so uh, straightforwardly, it's difficult to insulate the film from being misinterpreted by those who see events in a in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean. I maybe tipped my hand here a little bit in saying that, you know, I'm very um, a- ambivalent about the, the war on terror to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly the the use of torture techniques uh, is, uh, I think, morally reprehensible mm-hmm. and uh, is uh, the big reason that kind of turned around my thinking uh, on the entire enterprise politically and, and ethically and morally. Um, so when I watched this film, I see it very much as uh, kind of a, an embodiment of that um, that adage by by Nietzsche, you know, that those who contend with monsters need to take care that they don't become monsters themselves, mm-hmm. paraphrasing, of course. Yeah. Um, and I think that this is a really great, um, really excellent portrayal of that kind of dictum in action mm-hmm. as we see – uh, Jessica Chastain's Maya start out being kind of sickened by the uh, the torture that she witnesses in the film's uh, opening sequence mm-hmm. to the very end where she is uh, successfully prosecuted her mission unto the bitter end and then has to live with what she's done for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very sobering picture um, but I'm really interested to get your take on it as well, because like you mentioned, it's a very controversial film. There's many different ways of reading it. Mm-hmm. And the way I read it isn't necessarily the way that lots of people will. So what are, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, this was a really tough watch for me. Um, and uh, I, I suppose I'll tip my hand a little bit as well. I have family members who are in the military. So the war on terror feels very personal to me as well, um, which makes my feelings about a lot of this very complicated. Like you, I have come down on the side of I, I think torture is utterly reprehensible. That is not something that I think we should ever do. Um, and I, I'm kind of baffled by the fact that that's kind of feels like a controversial thing to say in some in some circles. So, um, but I think that this movie, like like you said, it really does feel like a Rorschach test, and I think it speaks to my own complicated feelings about the conflict um in that I had a really hard time getting a bead on what Catherine Bigelow was doing at first and I think I was starting to get onto her wavelength towards the end of that opening scene where I felt like I could sort of understand where Maya stood in relation to all of this so um she's left alone in the room with the prisoner near the end of this scene very difficult scene to watch. And he starts asking her for help. And she says, you can help yourself by telling the truth. And for me, that felt almost like an event horizon where she's taken on this job. And she's decided that she's going to see it through regardless of the consequences on on the person who's in front of her. And then so at that point, I I thought I had a good feel of what this movie was doing. And then I almost felt like I was going a little bit back and forth throughout the course of the movie, depending on which scene we're watching, what we're seeing Maya do um, in order to be able to achieve her goals. And she feels very slippery. And because she feels very slippery, she also feels very human and very real to me in a way where I couldn't fully vilify her, but I also couldn't fully condone all of her actions either. And so I think I was left like trying to grapple with the fact that this person could do Pretty unethical and unjustifiable things in pursuit of her goal. And then also understand that she is up against um, a force that, I mean, carried out terrorist attacks and, and trying to square that. It almost like it felt like trying to square a circle, you know, where there is this ongoing fight. And I don't think that all of the tactics are justified. And at the same time, like, it's really difficult to understand what are we going to do? Are we going to just sit back and do nothing? I'm not entirely sure. And I think Maya knows what she's going to do. And that's going to be take action, regardless of the consequences. And for me, I don't know what I would do in that situation. You know, It, it felt very uncomfortable for me to sit and to contemplate that and think through, well, I don't condone this, but also I'm I'm an American, and my government condoned it. And so, what am I supposed to do with this knowledge then? And I don't really know what to do with it besides sit with it.
1: I I think that's why this film's matter of factness works so well for me is that Bigelow doesn't give the audience an escape hatch where we can we we can think like okay, well, you know, we were we were all Americans. Uh, you know, this was carried out under the auspices of our elected officials. Um, What sort of responsibility, if any, do we bear for some of the abuses that happened essentially on our watch?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it, but if I watch this movie and I feel appropriately uh, like it, it's it's condoning or it's condemning these things on our behalf, then maybe that gives us the escape hatch. Of sort of absolving ourselves in some small way, and Bigelow doesn't let us do that. She she's very straightforward about uh, both the the bad things that the CIA and the armed forces may have done in pursuing this goal. Mm-hmm. She's, but at the same time, she's not at all uh, pulling any punches in portraying just how bad the people that were tr- that were. Uh, being hunted how bad they were as well Mm -hmm. and the overall effect for me is is just being pulled into this world where nothing is good everything is Mm. bad and yet there's it's almost like there's no option except to keep going in a in a certain direction and whichever direction is it we is embarked upon just terrible things will happen. Hmm. And in in a way it feels very much like a war film in that way and that's one of the reasons again why I picked it to pair with The Woman King is that's a war picture and even though the war on terror quote unquote wasn't technically a war in the traditional sense it carries a lot of the same moral uh dimensions and difficulties that warfare presents in in that sometimes it is it might be justified to prosecute a war but once that line is crossed there there's no going back and bad things immoral things will happen on all sides mm-hmm. and it's uh, something to be lamented and I I liked how clear-eyed this film is about that while not putting such a fine point on it that it allows the audience to sort of like say feel virtuous simply for engaging with it
2: yeah yeah it's a lot. <sighs> I think it's a lot subtler and I think it's a lot more detached than I'd expected. And that might've been also part of what sort of threw me off my footing at first. Um, I don't know, like weirdly all, I also felt extremely engaged by a lot of the process and the spy craft that's happening in here as well. And I, I think that there were sequences where I was able to be sucked into the process in a way that allowed me to sort of forget what the end goal was for a lot of these characters at the same time. And I also feel very conflicted about that as well, because some of it is there is the thrill of the chase and there is the thrill of I'm looking for someone and I have to use all of my available resources. And sometimes it's going to be just as simple as I'm going to pull over in a bazaar and wait for the guy who is doing circles in his car to come back around so that I can eventually find him again. Um, I don't know, like it, it, it's a very smart movie, not just about the what happened, but also the how and the why, and then the consequences that cascade down from the how and the why, as well as just... Sp- being able to watch smart people figure out a problem in sort of unconventional ways, sometimes good, sometimes a lot less good. Um, it almost brought me to mind of, of Michael Mann movies in a way. too. I was
1: going to mention Michael Mann as well.
2: Yeah, <laughs> like Michael Mann. And to a lesser extent, I think Christopher Nolan and, and, and Catherine Bigelow are all very focused on the process and on the steps that are needed in order to be able to enact a plan not so much that they're explaining precisely what is going to happen in dialogue and then like kind of tell the audience or like lead them along by the nose um but they are very good at laying out the individual steps that each of these characters need to make mentally and physically and emotionally in order to achieve their goals um, that's one of the things that I love about Michael Mann movies. That's one of the things that I'm learning that I love about Catherine Bigelow movies as well. I'll be curious to see, because I'm not as familiar with her more recent work. I've seen more of her older movies. So Near Dark, Point Break, and I think Strange Days, so some of her lesser known stuff, aren't quite as focused on that process. But I think that they all of those movies carry this, this level of technical proficiency that allows you to understand what's going on in her character's heads and then understand the reasoning behind why her character's characters do what they do and it feels really deeply uncomfortable to be inside maya's head sometimes i think so i'm, I'm curious to know if you're conflicted about that or if you experience the movie in quite that same way
1: i i mean i i think that chastain's performance i, I think she's so good in this film and, and it's, it, it's a performance that's not very showy like you said it's very uh it's very focused on the process uh, a lot of chastain scenes she's just sort of asking she she's interrogating somebody just kind of asking them questions not really betraying a lot of emotion outwardly um and in fact the entire film she's she's very good at um like projecting this very impassive exterior very like just the facts like i've got a job to do and that's kind of the crux of the film is this is just a job for her. She was she given an assignment and she's going to see that assignment all the way through to the end. And I think that's what makes the film's final shot so powerful is when mm. the the job is completed, then she dissolves into tears. Mm. And then she's she allows herself to feel emotions mm. that either she had repressed or that simply she didn't have the luxury of feeling. Mm. And – the ways that Bigelow uses that performance uh, to subtly maybe implicate the audience a little bit, like you you kind of are rooting for her in the same way that you're rooting for one of Michael Mann's criminals. Mm-hmm. You, you want, it's so satisfying to see somebody good at their job, be good at their job, that uh, we kind of want her to succeed even when she's, uh, party to uh, torturous interrogations or where uh, she's just really uh, engaged in cloak and dagger stuff, emphasis on the dagger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that's really productive, again, to exploit the, the tension between wanting to see this mission succeed because the people who perpetrate 9-11 are bad people, while also being very uncomfortable with the, the dark places that that eventually takes us mm. and i think that bigelow tips her hand just enough that i f- i feel like the film is not ambiguous it's ambivalent it's not ambiguous mm. um that early scene that you mentioned where we witness uh, an interrogation and torture there's the the uh the interrogator played by Jason Clark is kind of doing this good cop bad cop routine and he gives uh, some juice and a snack to the the person who he's been beating up for weeks maybe. Mm-hmm. And Bigelow's camera captures a tear trickling out of the the prisoner's eye as he just drinks this bottle of orange juice. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of a moment where you real you the, the film is really clear about what it's up to. It's it's saying like, I'm going to be very matter of fact about this and I'm not going to make overt ploys for uh, sentimentality or emotion, but there are real human costs to what's going on here. And I'm not going to let you escape from that. I, I, I don't know. I just really appreciate that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I really love that final shot, because I think it does a good job at counting the cost of what it does to a human soul to pursue that end. Um, And I think the way that I've, I've been thinking about this movie as I've been processing it is, is not so much as a war movie, but more as a revenge movie. Hmm. It starts off with actual audio from the nine 11 attacks. um, And then throughout the film, um, Every time you see a date on screen, you know that there's going to be another like large attack that's about to happen or, or a major attack in a way that hasn't been experienced before the attack on the CIA, um, the London bus bombings in 2010. And in every single instance, I think it, it feels like there's this sort of retribution of you're pursuing us, so we're going to attack you. Well, you attacked us, so we're going to continue to pursue you. And it it feels almost like the vice is starting to to tighten more and more over the course of the film. And it really feels as though for Maya, this entire pursuit is completely personal, even though she has never met any of the people that, that she is looking for. And I think it's kind of telling that she's sort of a composite character or like a a fictionalized version based on a couple of real life people, because it's not just personal for her, but I think in a way, she's almost like a personification of the United States in its pursuit of Al-Qaeda. And I think it's a really smart move In terms of storytelling to have her be that one person because we can identify with her as a viewer. And then we can also sort of understand the rage that's fueling her throughout the course of the movie. Like you mentioned that she allows herself to to feel emotion for the first time at the very end. But there is a moment where she has an outburst directly towards her boss where she yells at him to, to give me the resources that I need, so that I can do my job and she yells at him in front of his own superiors. And that rage feels very much like I don't know. A lot of the sentiment that came out of of nine eleven in particular, like I was quite young, but I do remember the United States pre and post nine eleven, and I think that there was a, there was a lot of collective mourning, and I think that there was also a lot of collective rage at the same time. And that felt like that one scene felt like a very good distillation, even though it wasn't necessarily just about that. It was just about I need the resources I need in order to do my job. Does that make sense? I
1: I, I think that's that makes perfect sense. And I think it's a good distillation of again why this this film <laughs> I, I keep coming back to the metaphor. Of it just doesn't let you escape. Mm-hmm. You can't set aside the horrors that uh these uh the, the terrorists perpetrated. Um there's there's no way to forget that. There's no way to forget the fact that in responding to those we also committed horrible acts and there's just no good answer and I, it's just so i i think there the film keeps tightening the screws on the audience like you, I mentioned, you mentioned how every time a date pops up on screen you know like oh we're going to witness something horrible happen mm-hmm. and that strategy is very intentional. Bigelow is going to remind me, like, these aren't good guys who are, or victims that the United States is going after. Mm-hmm. Does that make a difference though, morally <laughs> like mm-hmm. that? And, and that question is, is the one that the film keeps asking us over and over and over. And uh, the film doesn't really give us an answer. Like at, at the end of the day, yes, it was justified. Or at the end of the day, no, we were monsters. It's neither of those things. And it's both of those things. And that, I think, is what makes this feel like a very moral film to me, for all of its matter of factness. Mm-hmm. It is very clear-eyed about what the situation is and what the costs are of pursuing the path that was chosen. And i I mean, that I think, is just what lots of great moral art is is not necessarily telling you what the moral is, mm-hmm. but making it clear that we live in a we exist in a moral universe. and, there will be a reckoning. There are
2: things out there that, if you do them, they will corrode your soul. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. Oof. Well, <laughs> I, it, it, you know, it, it's interesting. And, and talking about this now, I feel like this crystallizes some of my dissatisfaction. Maybe with with the woman king it isn't so much that there was anything wrong with the way it was portrayed, but it's just I never really got that kind of sense about. That, that kind of commentary on the slave trade or even this this warfare between these two nations, mm. it felt very Hollywoodized and sort of like, we knew who to root for. We knew who the good guys were. Mm-hmm. And the good guys didn't never really did anything to make the audience feel uncomfortable. Mm. And in this film, to the extent that there even are good guys, it's all stuff that makes us
3: uncomfortable.
2: Yeah, The Woman <laughs> King definitely feels more like a, a comfort of there's evil and there's a way to fight it. And if you do that, then things will be made right. And I think that that is a valuable message to be given.
1: It is but... it, it is true that there is evil out there <laughs> yeah. and it, there is a good side and a bad side. Yeah. And things will be put to right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I appreciate how Zero Dark Thirty maybe suggests that human beings are really bad about being that authority
2: Mm, yeah that's a very good point
1: uh well listeners that's our our discussion of zero dark 30 uh yes controversy was was found and i don't know i I liked that we, we we took a stab at resolving it anyway we'd be interested in your thoughts those of you who have seen this picture and have your own opinions about it uh email or tweet us this is obviously a film that a lot can be said about it its strategies the story and and the events that it portrays so mm-hmm. let us know your thoughts um we are going to be moving on to uh maybe something a little bit less morally harrowing for for next week's episode i don't know we'll we'll see yeah um there's of course going to be david o russell's amsterdam a, a murder mystery set in the 1930s that we're going to be checking out and sarah you uh have chosen to pair a certain neo-noir with that subject
2: yeah uh you said probably not morally uh murky and i think we're going to get a little bit morally murky with uh the long goodbye um starring elliot gould it's an la noir so it's a little bit sunny there is a seed of darkness at the heart of this movie that i'm really looking forward to discussing with you i
1: as any L.A. noir worth its salt probably is in the end, but I obviously haven't seen it. I'm looking forward to catching up with that one. Uh, listeners, The Long Goodbye is streaming if you're a Canopy subscriber, and it's available for rental on on other platforms. If you want to watch along with us, that's the way you can find that film. Also, keep an eye out for our bonus episode for October. We're going to be digging into Andrew Dominic's Blonde, another film that uh, has... Uh, a lot of moral murkiness to it as as well and
2: its share of controversy so no strangers to controversy yes
1: yes indeed so lots of controversy in seeing and believing's near future but that'll do it for this week's controversial episode seeing and believing is brought to you by the christ and pop culture podcast network our producer is Jonathan Claussen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan.
2: I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you
1: next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes, and check out our other shows at christinpopculture.com
2: slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and
0: Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.